Father, thank you for Andrew and all he's doing and serving us today, both in playing bass and preaching. And we pray that you would do him good and do us good as we hear from your word uh, together. Bless you. Amen. Hoping the technology works. Good morning, church. Lovely to see you all this morning. Very warm welcome to any visitors with us. Um, this year we've been working through a series on 1 Corinthians. Um, we're just over halfway through, but as we haven't been looking at Corinthians for about five weeks, I thought I'd just do a very quick recap to refresh your memories and for visitors uh, and for people who have been away. Church in first, or first century Corinth was a major commercial centre, really important place, very wealthy, very cosmopolitan people from all over the Mediterranean and beyond meeting there because of the trade. The city itself, dominated by the huge temple of Aphrodite, served by priestesses. And the social characteristics of, of the city was people were very independent, very strong-willed, very individualistic. It's all about me. And they loved to press their rights, even to law courts. And because of the temple of Aphrodite, there was a lot of immorality. And into this city, Paul planted a church. He was there for a while, preaching them, building them up. Then he moved on. And he's writing this letter because there are problems. There are problems with divisions. There's problems around sex. There's problems around food and particularly feasting. Problems in the worship services, particularly around communion, keeping order, prophecies, tongues. And there are even disputes about the resurrection. So a lot of problems in the church, but in particular underlying these are individual specific issues that reflect the nature of Corinth. A lot of the Christians were very independent. They wanted to worship God on their terms. Um, they focused on their rights within the church. You know, if I'm giving this much to the church, I should have my say. There was immorality creeping into the church. Paul even says, these things should not be. The obsession with wisdom and worldly knowledge, a focus on personality, particularly different types of leaders. And the result of this was a huge amount of disunity. And as Paul works his way through addressing each of these issues, we see there's a number of recurring themes that will come up again and again as we look through 1 Corinthians, the importance of sound doctrine. You've got to go with what the Bible says, what God says. You can't make up your own doctrine just to suit what you want. The importance of unity. The church always has been, always will be, under attack from the world, and we need to stand together and care for each other. And the importance of being different from the world, not just blending into, you know, we could all be friendly with the world and friendly with the church and nobody noticed the difference. The importance of selflessness and the importance of loving one another. These are really important themes that come back and back. And so this is the context in which we're looking at Corinthians. And last time we were looking at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, aiming for the prize making the most of every opportunity to live a life that reflects Jesus, running in such a way as to get the prize. And we looked at different ways, the, the, the prizes. 
But to get the prize, we need to be going to training, to focus on God and discipline ourselves to make sure we're not disqualified and ruled out from winning the prize. And and we saw that some of the things that disqualify us are self-righteousness, self-reliance and running ourselves down. So that's where we've got to. And we come now to 1 Corinthians 10. More than halfway there. We're getting there. And Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through Paul to the Corinthians that speaks even to us today. And we pray, Lord, you will speak to us, to our hearts, to our lives, through these words this morning. Amen. Right, as you know, I like to set a bit of context. An important word that that we start with is for... For I do not want you to be ignorant. This follows on from what's gone before, on the warnings that they don't disqualify themselves by not living a Christ-like life. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant. Now, it's quite probable that he's thinking a large part of the church are Gentiles, particularly Greek background, They won't understand the full history of Israel and won't have had these lessons. But there's possibly also a little bit of a a dig at the Corinthians saying, you know, you think you're clever, you don't actually know it all. And so what Paul's doing here is he's giving them a history lesson from Israel's past. He's saying, these things happened to Israel in the past as a lesson for us. And there are a lot of the ones, the examples he picks out are particularly pertinent to the Corinthians. So he's saying, 
They were all part of the same family of God that came out of Israel, were delivered miraculously by God. They were all guided by the the fire by night, the cloud by day. They were led by Moses. They were all going through the same rituals, the same forms, and yet most of them fell in the desert. The forms, the outward signs, are not enough. So, Corinthians, you may think you've got all your prophetic words and speaking in tongues and your type of liturgy. You may think you've got it sorted, but that alone is not what's important. They were all led by Moses, but most of them fell. Be wary of just thinking, because you follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that will get you in. It's not enough. And even Moses got carried away when he struck the rock the second time, went beyond what God has said. He was not allowed to enter the promised land. So there's warnings against complacency and presumption. But also warnings against idolatry. The first example uh, Paul picks is the Israelites so easily fell into idolatry. And this was linked with going on to the, the, the type of revelry and orgies that were associated with the religions of the area. And that was a particular problem in Corinth. This surrounded by pagan worship festivals and the Corinthians were trying to have it both ways. Meeting with the brethren one day, going off to the temple another day. Warnings against sexual immorality. We've already seen the big problem that they had got in, in the church in Corinth, reflecting society. And warnings against complacency and presumption and assuming that because they went to church they were all right. The bottom line is Sorry, there was also a particular warning against ingratitude. And I think that's important because it's very easy to think of sin as the bad sins. Think of the Ten Commandments, murder, adultery. We don't do any of that. Well, Corinthians, they did, obviously. But we forget that ingratitude is a sin. Grumbling is a sin. How often do we lapse into that? So, Paul's warning the Corinthians that it's so easy to think you've got it made, but to stumble and to disqualify yourselves from the prizes that God has in store for us. And the reason he's writing all this is because he wants to warn them. These are written down as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as the Israelites did. So what we're looking at this week is facing temptation. Because when we succumb to temptation, we are setting our hearts on evil things. The word for, for temptation here, or to tempt, is prazo, which means to tempt, but also means to test, to prove. So temptation, when it comes, is testing how strong is our faith? How strong is our love for the Lord? Um, and it's the same word used in, in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. It's a health check. 
And temptation highlights those things we have set our hearts on. Those things that come between us and God. Uh, Oscar Wilde famously once said, I can resist everything except temptation. And we laugh at that because it's very clever. But there's actually quite a lot of truth in it. If you came up to me and said, Andrew, I can sell you some really good cocaine. You'll love this stuff. I'm not interested. Eh, Keep your rubbish. If you were to offer me a nice chilled bottle of Italian white wine, I would not be so quick to send you away. If you say, yeah, let's go down to McDonald's, have a quadruple super burger with loads of chips and and unhealthy stuff. No? No? Not interested. Flapjack. Or those who saw me succumbing last week, a Belgian bun with icing and a cherry on the top. You might come up and say, come round this evening, we can watch four hours of pornography. Oh, now four hours of board games, especially if it's ticket to ride, you can't play by yourself, I'm in. See, we're tempted by those areas that we succumb to. And the devil knows that. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. And sometimes even good things what seem like good things, can lead us astray. And I'm afraid to say that even on a church treasure hunt, people can be so obsessed with winning that they have to cheat by blocking another team. It's shocking. I mean, I'm on the name, no names. But you know how you are. So temptation is when the devil comes and pushes us, tests us, to see how deep our faith really is. But there are three really good lessons in this passage that I want to focus on this morning, and we're going to highlight it with a a couple of case studies. And the first, first one is, be careful. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We are probably at our most vulnerable to temptation when we think, it could never happen to me. Be alert and of sober mind, Peter writes. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, if you go into a lion-infested jungle you need to be on your guard. If you're just sauntering through thinking, lions, I come from Suffolk, we don't have lions, we don't have a problem with that, you are far more vulnerable than if you're on the lookout. And there's this lovely word, Proverbs. I mean, people have watered this down now to say, pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. And the more proud, the more self-confident, the more self-reliant we are, the more vulnerable we are. 
And Paul writes to the Ephesians, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. We need to take nothing for granted and always be on our guard. So the first case study, King David. David had been pursued by Saul for years. He conducted himself impeccably. And eventually Saul had been killed. David had been crowned king. He'd united the kingdom. He'd brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He had wives. He had children. He was secure. But in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. There's the first bit of complacency. Instead of leading his armies as kings were expected to do, he just dispatched Joab to do the job. Ah, I've done my time, I deserve a rest. Relaxing off his guard. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. I don't know why he was wandering around. These things happen. Happened to see a lady bathing. Did he say, how embarrassing, go back inside? No, carried on looking. The woman was very beautiful. And he didn't just look. He sent someone to find out about her. He could have just think, oh, that's embarrassing. We'll forget about the whole thing. His, his curiosity, his lust was aroused. Who is this stunner? I've got to find out who she is. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was one of David's great men. There are lists of the people who, almost you know, the the core of the army, the elite, the people David relied on. And Uriah was one of him, one of these, a trusted associate of David, and this was his wife. So David knew she was married, married to one of his associates, his inner circle, but he sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. He succumbed to temptation because he was off his guard, thought he, got his, thought he was safe, secure, everything going well. He could have been where he should have been, leading the army. He could have averted his eyes and gone back down into the palace. He needed not to send people to find out about him. He didn't need to send for her. He didn't need to sleep with her. But each step, it gets harder and harder to resist the temptation. Once he'd seen, he needed to find out more. Maybe it was because he knew Uriah was off at war. He thought, ah, this is my opportunity. But the, the further he got in, the harder it was to resist temptation. So, be careful. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Second important lesson. You are not alone. It's very easy to think when we're tempted that that reflects badly on us. 
No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Everyone faces temptation. Being tempted is not a sin. Succumbing to temptation is a sin, but everyone is tempted. Paul writes to Romans, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind. Praise God, we have been saved through the redeeming blood of Jesus on the cross. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will spend eternity with him when we have been fully saved. But while we are on this earth, there's this constant tussle between the flesh and the spirit. And even Paul struggled with it all the time. It's common to everyone, even to Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now it's very easy to think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. That was it. Jesus was tempted. Passed that test. Tick. Sorted. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, He was tempted in every way. If you can turn water into wine, there must be the temptation to go and get drunk with your mates. But he did not sin. If you're surrounded by devoted women who will do anything for you, there must be sexual sin. Temptation. Yet he did not sin. We know when he was crossed by uh, villagers, James and John said, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and blast these people to oblivion. A temptation to revenge. Yet he did not sin. And it's important to remember that the temptations Jesus faced were not confined to those in the wilderness, but he was tempted in every way so that He can empathise with us. We can go to him and know he understands what temptation's all about. Let's have a look at another case study. No, no, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Third important lesson, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He understands. He knows. And that means we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When we are facing temptation... God is faithfully there with us if we call on him to help. And the specific examples of how he helps is to make sure we are not tempted beyond what you can bear. You cast your mind back to the story of Job. 
Satan wanted to really tempt Job in a whole range of ways. But God put limits on what Satan could do. A limit to what it was that Job could bear. So God will never allow us to face a temptation that is so utterly overwhelming that we can't possibly do anything but resist. And equally, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now that way out will depend on the circumstances. But again, looking back to David, before he became king, while he was roaming around the countryside with a group of various supporters, he'd been looking after a rough farmer called Nabal and his flocks, making sure no harm came to them. And after a while, he asked Nabal for some supplies just to keep the the troops going. And Nabal was so rude, dismissive, David was livid. That was it. He was going to annihilate Nabal, all his family, all his servants, the lot. But God sent Nabal's wife, Abigail, a much wiser, more prudent, more discerning lady than her husband, often the case, And she approached David with all sorts of bread, meats, goodies, and said, look, I didn't know this has happened. Please accept this. Please have mercy on us. And David acknowledged that that action had stopped him killing a whole lot of people. Through Abigail, God had provided David with a way to overcome his natural temptation to get revenge. Now we come to the second case study. It's so important because if Jesus has faced every temptation and not sinned, obviously we can learn from him. This is Luke's account. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil interesting point. We think of the three specific temptations, but this was going on for 40 days. Nearly six weeks of the devil constantly trying to undermine Jesus. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So Satan's homing in, 40 days without food, you're hungry. Come on, you can do it. You can turn stones into bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So what Jesus is doing there is saying, ah, you're looking at the the small picture, just the bread. I'm looking at the bigger picture, do I trust my father? And his first line of defence is scripture. He is quoting scripture, man shall not live on bread alone. The, level, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
So this time, Satan's appealing another one of his favourite tricks. He's tried physical need, power. He can rule all the kingdoms. You just have to worship me. But again, Jesus sees the bigger picture. He knows that in the fullness of time, he is going to reign forever. He knows that in the fullness of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not sidetracked by short-term power. And again, he's using scripture. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. See, the devil's a bit slow, but he catches on. Okay, we'll play this scripture game. So he starts taking scripture out of context to try and tempt Jesus. And that's something we have to be careful of. Taking scripture out of context to justify what we want to do. But no, Jesus has the big picture. He knows all of scripture and how it fits together in context. Interestingly, why this particular temptation? Jerusalem was a big city. Lots of people there. If you see someone jump off a building and land unscathed, fame. That gets around. So Satan's not very original. He's appealing to base instincts, power, fame, things that he's been used with so much success on so many people inside and out of the church since. And I think it's quite useful to compare and contrast David and Jesus facing temptation. David was vulnerable. That's where Satan got him lust. Jesus was vulnerable. That's where he tried to get him, with hunger. David was complacent. He thought he was safe. His enemies couldn't get him there, but he forgot the devil. Jesus was prepared. He knew what was coming because he'd been led into the desert for this purpose. David was off his guard. Jesus was on his guard. David was led by the flesh. And there's that important verse at the beginning Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit. David relied on his own strength to deal with the situation. Jesus relied on the word of God. David gave in to temptation because his approach was all wrong. Jesus, who got it right, overcame temptation. David gave in, went on to sin. And all the consequences that followed for his family, for his reign, for our ongoing situation, brought upon himself. Jesus went on to start his powerful ministry. So we can learn a lot from the different approaches to facing temptation. So how do we deal with temptation when it comes across? Here's three ideas. First. Let us examine our ways and test them 
and let us return to the Lord. This sense of examining ourselves. Where am I weak? If I'm on a diet and I've got a weakness for cream cakes, I need to make sure I avoid the cream cake section in Tesco's or not go past Greg's because I need to be aware of what my weaknesses are as part of uh, being careful. Obviously, the important thing is to resist. James writes, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what Jesus did. Resisted, and the devil went away. But sometimes, the best thing to do is run away ourselves. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness. It's what Joseph did when he was in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Best thing he could do, run away. Sadly for Joseph, it didn't keep him out of prison, but it did keep his integrity intact. He had not succumbed to the temptation because he'd run away from it. But I say, the important thing is to resist temptation. How can we resist temptation? First thing, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Temptation always begins in the mind. Think back to Genesis, the very first temptation. Did God say? It's getting into Eve's mind, questioning God's truth. And the more we think about something, the more it seems appealing. That's what David's problem was with Bathsheba. Didn't get rid of the thoughts. He fed on those thoughts. Thoughts lead to actions. And if they're repeated in a cycle, those actions become habits, and habits can become addictions. And it's harder and harder to break the cycle. So that's why Paul urges the Corinthians in his second epistle, take captive every thought and make it obedient to to Christ. Bring it to the cross. Lord, you know I'm struggling with this. You know I have a weakness. Please take it away. The psalmist writes, how can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? There it is again, the word of God. If you know scripture, if you learn scripture, you can bring these things to mind when you're tempted. That's what Jesus did. So building your life on the word of God equips you to deal with temptation. Even more important, be filled with the Spirit, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Jesus was able to resist temptation because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And if you're always giving thanks to God, that can help drive away temptation. Temptation does not sit comfortably with a time of praise and worship. And so, if you focus on God, that will help. Later on, the the same Psalm 119, in fact, the very next verse, I seek you with all my heart. Why? Do not let me stray from your commands. 
the closer we draw to God, the harder it will be for Satan to tempt us. Not impossible. You'll always try. But the closer we are to God, the more full of the Holy Spirit we are, the more we have grasped the truth of his word, the more we will be able to resist temptation. God has equipped us to resist temptation. He has provided us with a way out. In fact, he's provided us with a whole set of armour. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. There's a whole preaching series in that passage. But God has provided us with this armour to help us stand firm in times of temptation. Particularly the shield of faith with which you extinguish the arrows of the evil one. Now that faith is not a trust in our own righteousness or own ability. It is faith in God for all circumstances to deliver us. Faith trusting God, holding on to him firmly. But again, we also see the importance of the word of God and prayer in dealing with temptation. The third thing, that I, the three important lessons I wanted to share with you this morning. Be careful that you don't fall. You are not alone. Even Jesus has been tempted. And God is faithful. But God's faithfulness is not just limiting the scope of temptation and providing a way out. God is faithful even when we stumble, when we do succumb to temptation. Ezekiel writes, Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. We don't have to keep repeating the same mistakes. And one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is God's promise if we repent. If you have succumbed to temptation, if you're struggling with a habit that's unhelpful, confess he is faithful and will forgive us our sins. Even cheating in a church treasure hunt. Nothing is unforgivable. <laughs> Sorry. I apologise for succumbing to that temptation. <laughs> God is faithful to forgive. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. This is not to say we should presume on God's 
mercy and grace and just carry on sinning because he'll forgive us. But when we do stumble, where Satan wants us to grovel and feel bad and miserable uh, and forsake all our church friends in shame and never go to church again because we're so useless and rubbish, Jesus says, no, come to me in repentance. My blood is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Nothing you do is beyond the grace of God for forgiveness. That is what our Saviour does for us. He's been tempted. He understands and he is faithful to support us. So, when temptation comes knocking, as surely it will, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind and Jesus himself is able to understand our weakness because he has been tempted. And he is faithful to not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear and to provide a way out. If we prepare ourselves, soak ourselves in the word of God, soak ourselves in praise, put on the armour of God, then we will be able to stand in the day of temptation. And we invite the band back, and I'll change roles in a moment. But I think just to have a couple of songs, allow time to reflect on this. If you, are think, if you think you are strong and never going to be tempted, reflect, see where your weakness is. Allow God to speak into that. If you are being tempted, stand on the word of God and ask for him to help you. And if you have stumbled, ask for repentance, ask for forgiveness, and he is faithful. Now, it may be that you actually want someone to pray with you. If you do, just raise a hand. And I encourage people around to, to go and pray with those people. If you particularly want to be prayed for by one of the leadership team, come to the front. That's sometimes harder. But we want people to be free from the oppression of temptation and free to be the people Jesus wants us to be, to live lives that reflect our Saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was tempted in every respect, like us. Lord, we thank you that he knows exactly what we're facing and the struggles that we go through. Because although fully God, he was fully man and fully tempted. We thank you, Jesus, that you understand. Lord, we thank you that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. We thank you that you provide a way out, that you provide us with your word, with the armour of God, with faith, with the Holy Spirit to enable us to resist. And we ask your forgiveness that even despite all that, we do sometimes fall. But we thank you that when we do, we can turn to you in repentance and know that you will forgive and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Amen.